From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More wildfires in Colorado also mean more flash floods. After a deadly flash flood in Poudre Canyon this week, we're talking with a meteorologist about the risks. Then, Tara searched for a school district that would be safe for her child who's transgender. And Erin came out as transgender in high school. Now they're helping organize Uray County's first public pride celebration. They're letting folks know that even though Uray is rural... We have some color, some spice, as some would say. But it's also going to be very important for those who are still in the closet to know that they're not alone. And a new statue at the state capitol will memorialize World War II Major General Maurice Rose. What's his legacy? Plus, we'll take a trip to a medieval kingdom, the Colorado Renaissance Festival. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. A thunderstorm hit hillsides scarred by wildfire in Larimer County earlier this week. It caused a flash flood that raced through Poudre Canyon and killed at least one person. Last year's fires scorched more than half a million acres in Colorado, and rainstorms are a fact of life here. That means the threat will be with us for a while. For more on flash floods and how to stay safe, I'm joined by meteorologist Paul Schlotter of the National Weather Service. Hi, Paul. Uh, Good morning, Avery. A lot of people are in the mountains these days, maybe more than usual. Folks are hiking, camping, traveling now that COVID restrictions are relaxed. What kinds of places should they be avoiding? Well, uh, for one, uh, places that recently had... uh, significant wildfires, especially last year's wildfires, which I, I'm sure we all remember those. Some of the worst in Colorado history occurred uh, just west of Fort Collins and, and northwest of Denver. Those areas, uh, especially this year and for years to come, are the, the worst possible places where uh, extreme flash flooding uh, can occur with just an average rainstorm. Uh, so definitely those are the areas that people need to be extremely aware of their surroundings if they go into those areas. Why is that? What changed in those areas because of the wildfires? Well, uh, when, a, when a really hot wildfire blows through, um, it changes the dynamic of the soil and the soil's ability to uh, for water to infiltrate it. So the, the easiest way to describe it is just picture, you know, after a fire comes through, just imagine that the entire slope, every single area that fire touched was paved in concrete because that's how the rain will respond as it falls on those burned areas. It goes, none of it goes into the ground. It goes straight into the lowest lying areas, canyons, um, dry washes and fills those up, fills them up with debris and all kinds of water and just um, mudslides, debris flows, all that, all that can occur just because uh, a fire blew through a year before. And you're talking about low-lying areas, so it's not enough to just stay away from a creek that might overflow its banks, right? Right. Uh, I mean, cer- certainly creeks are the first areas you'd have to watch out for, but even dry, you know, bottoms, low areas, dry, even if they look dry right now, 
um, put some rainfall on a burn scar, that debris is going to flow to the lowest spot in that area and pose a pose a risk to your life for sure. And this can get complicated by fire debris as well. I mean, I'm seeing those videos of the flood the other night in Larimer County. How does that play in here? Yeah, that plays a huge role. So not only do you have to worry about just the water, which is, I just described, uh, flowing on concrete, all the water goes straight into the dry dr- dry stream, river, you know, wh- whatever whatever the lower lowest area is. But as that, on in addition to just the water, the soil is so unstable because of the burn, you know, boulders the size of cars, the size of people, um, the dead tree, not the burnt trees, the entire tree. So as soon as they burn, they, they weaken, put some water in that, they, they fall out of the ground, flow with the water. So we're talking about debris piles flowing downstream that are made of uh, mud, trees, boulders, all these things are, are in the flow. And, you know, it could be several feet deep and they will take out anything in their path, especially uh, houses, structures, cars. It doesn't matter what it is. It, it'll all get destroyed uh, because of those debris flows. And when you're talking about soil that doesn't absorb any water, I mean, how long does a storm have to go on before it can cause a flash flood? Yeah, the, the unfortunate thing uh, that, that makes these things so uh, dangerous is it just an average thunderstorm that we see in July. If it sits over the same spot for a half hour, that's enough to cause at least minor debris flows. You know, do it heavy rain for an hour and we're talking, you know, uh, certain um, uh, debris flows, mudslides, uh, more extreme impacts. But we're only talking a half inch in 30 minutes. That's all it takes to get you know, on a burn scar to get things going downhill in the wrong direction. And just to illustrate the power of these, in Larimer County, the flood, it destroyed five houses. Um, some of the people evacuated in Tuesday night's flash flood, they were camping. If I'm outside and I'm pitching a tent, are there things like distance from a creek or distance from a canyon that I should consider? Uh, every, obviously every drainage, every, every burn scar is going to be a little bit different, but some things you can definitely do, uh, to pay It's just really to pay attention to your surroundings. Um, look up the hill. Uh, was it severely burned? Is, Is there already piles of debris up the hill? Are there boulders up the hill? Um, because put any amount of rain on those boulders and the trees and quickly you've got a debris flow coming right at you. You definitely want to be as high above the creek as you can, or even dry wash as you can, where high enough above it where it's safe to camp, of course. Because, I mean, plan for if you're in a burn area, plan for the, the debris flows could be 10 feet above wherever, at least 10 feet above where the lowest water line is right now before the rain starts. So, uh, it, it can get it can get bad in a hurry. So, always just being really aware of your surroundings, checking the slope, um, checking where there's debris piles already. If someone does find themselves in one of those danger areas, how much time do they usually have to get out? Um, it, it depends, of course. Um, debris flows typically can take anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes uh, after the rain falls. Part of the problem is, though, it may not be raining where you are, um, and but a debris flow could still be headed your way because um, they can travel many, many miles from where the, the rain source that initiates them. So generally, you, you have it probably about 10 minutes, uh, and oftentimes you can hear it coming. There'll be a pretty big roar that you hear when the when a debris debris flow is coming at you. Um, so if, if you're camping or hiking, 
should be plenty of time to seek higher ground. If you're in a house, gosh, you have to make sure you have ways to get flash flood warnings um, because you may not hear it coming at you. You may not know you, you may not know it's coming if, if you're inside a house. Especially if it's from a rainstorm that's miles away. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. So this doesn't give authorities very much time to try and evacuate and rescue people if high water is coming. Is the flooding danger higher than usual right now? It seems like it's been a little wetter this summer in some parts of the state. Absolutely. Uh, we this so three for the past three years we haven't had um, summer rains normal summer rains. We've been much drier than normal. And the reason is the the monsoon that we've all heard about, the North American monsoon pattern, hasn't been here for three years. We finally have it this year. So that that's why uh, rain, especially southwest Colorado and west central Colorado, they're getting daily rainstorms that are actually very beneficial for the most part um, in helping alleviate the drought. A lot, a lot of times that monsoon moisture does make it into north central Colorado, the Denver metro area, the foothills west of Denver, Fort Collins, like it is now. And that's when we've got issues because that's where the worst burn areas are. So superimpose the moisture on top of burn areas. We're going to have problems. It, it's not an issue of if, but uh, but when for sure. How long can we expect the monsoon season to last? Uh, just looking at the la- the latest outlooks, at a minimum, another two weeks. So good news for drought, bad news for burn scar flash flooding. But for at least another two weeks, it looks like the pattern is going to be favorable for thunderstorms in Colorado pretty much every afternoon. So it is wetter. Does that mean that we are looking at lower fire danger, but higher flood risk, like you're saying? That's exactly right. Uh, along and east of the Continental Divide, we actually eliminated the drought this spring into early summer because of how wet it's been. West of the Continental Divide, especially northwest Colorado, say from Grand Junction all the way to the Wyoming border, there's still an exceptional drought. So fire danger is going to remain high unless they can get some of this moisture up there. But for the um, eastern foothills uh, along I-25, west of I-25, uh, right now fire danger is uh, fairly low. And we can't talk about these dramatic weather events without also talking about climate change. Tell me a little bit more about how that plays into what we're seeing with flash floods right now. Well, the 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 thing about climate change is that um, the data are there that show that heat heat waves are longer and more intense uh, and have been and are only going to get worse in that sense. Uh, and you you don't want longer, more intense heat waves because that dries out the fuels. Uh, grasses, trees, everything's dried out. It'll burn a lot easier if a fire ever gets going. And uh, we call it the bane of our existence. We don't want burn scars because of exactly what's happening right now uh, in the Poudre Canyon. They're trouble for years to come. Put any rainfall on them, they're very bad. So with climate change making drought and heat waves more uh, intense and longer lived, uh, the potential for big burn scars are, is only going to go up in in, a, in, the, in the warming climate that we're seeing. And I want to close on some questions about safety. You mentioned keeping an ear out for flash flood warnings. How do meteorologists decide when to issue a warning and how far ahead can you determine that risk? Yeah, so the, with the flash flood warnings we issue, this is particularly for, for burn scars, which are at, at such high risk. We try and get 30 to 60 minutes of lead time, but from when we issue the warning, uh, uh, when it, it, until impacts are expected to to happen, so that should give most people enough time to get out of harm's way. That's our that's our plan with this, and what we ask is that you make sure you have a way to receive those warnings. A TV is a great way to do it. 
uh, cell phone, especially if you have cell phone coverage, because when we issue a flash flood warning, you'll get that wireless emergency alert that'll ping your phone and, and let you know that something's coming. Um, a NOAA weather radio, it's about the size of a mobile phone and they're battery operated, so you can have those as well. Um, you'll get warnings that way. Just make sure you have a way to receive those warnings. That, that's my best advice. And we only have about 30 seconds left, but in those 30 seconds in Glenwood Canyon Springs, uh, rather Glenwood Springs, officials are stopping traffic if there's a flash flood warning. Is that a good idea in other burn scar areas? Yeah, I mean, every burn scar is going to be a little bit different, but um, it doesn't take much rain to cause debris to flow across the road, and that causes issues for travelers. So it, that's always a good idea if that's what the, the community wants to do. Paul, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Paul Schlatter is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Boulder. Well, as wildfires continue to burn in Colorado, new research in one community suggests people are not as prepared as they think. Miguel Otarola reports from CPR's climate team. Bailey, Colorado is about an hour southwest of Denver, thick with ponderosa pines and connected by dirt roads that wind through rugged mountains. Chief Joe Burgett has worked with the Platte Canyon Fire Protection District for 25 years. He knows that behind the area's natural beauty lies the constant threat of wildfires. They move here for what you see today before a fire. But what you see today before a fire is not, this is not natural. New research shows that most residents here vastly underestimate the danger they're in. The fire district in CU Boulder, along with a wildfire research nonprofit, surveyed homeowners last year about how they perceived the risk of fire. Firefighters then went out to inspect the homes and see if what they said matched reality. Burgett was shocked by the results. Most people felt they were relatively safe from wildfires, but in reality, 80% are at high or very high risk. Half of them think they have a proper safety zone around their house as well, but the experts say only 17% actually do. I just, I never thought that those two opinions would be so differing and, and potentially so far off in some cases. People's underestimation of wildfire risk could have dire consequences for those who live near wilderness areas. That's about half of the population in Colorado. With climate change making wildfires more common and dangerous in the West, researchers want to narrow the gap between people's perceptions of the risk and what's really in front of them. Burgett and I drove around the subdivision where the survey was conducted. This place hasn't seen a major wildfire in almost 20 years. Burgett knows from experience that it's just a matter of time before another one happens. Fires are so much bigger than we are, and they're a natural occurring happenstance in, in our environment, regardless of where you live. But the Mountain West is very susceptible to, to wildland fires. We stop at a large section of Pike National Forest that's empty, still scarred by a fire that destroyed homes decades ago. Homeowner Tim Peterson yells out to us from his driveway and invites us up to his deck. But if you come up here, you can see uh, quite a bit. Peterson's home is a fire inspector's dream. The deck is fire-resistant Brazilian hardwood, the exterior walls are made out of less flammable stucco, the yard is covered in gravel, and the surrounding trees are trimmed so they don't catch fire as easily. Now, Peterson was an airfield commander in the military where he oversaw firefighters. He knows how to prepare his home for the threat of fire, but says that some of his neighbors aren't doing enough. So the information is there for all these newcomers. They just have to make the effort, you know, to educate themselves on what it's like. This is not the city. (laughs) 
Hannah Brenkert-Smith has been monitoring the area ever since the deadly Hayman fire in 2002. She worked on the survey as a research associate professor at CU's Institute of Behavioral Sciences. She says what's happening in Bailey is happening in communities across the country. She also wants people who live in the wilderness to know the truth. Fires are going to happen, so people need to know how to protect themselves and their homes. Fire is not an enemy of the forests. It's the large, uncontrolled, catastrophic fires that are a problem for the forests. And so we want to work towards a future where we have fires burning regularly that do not result in catastrophic outcomes. That may sound like a contradiction, but she says it's what needs to happen to keep the forests under control. The Bailey community has done a lot of work over the years to help residents prepare for fires. Homeowners drop piles of brush and branches in front of their drives that volunteers later throw into a wood chipper. Organizations like Firewise inspect homes and suggest ways to keep them safe. Burgett, the Black Canyon fire chief, says they've even carved out chunks of the forest for people to go to if they are unable to evacuate. The choice of either having them relocate or moved to a temporary area of refuge as as opposed to staying in the middle of the roadway and burning is not a great option, but it's a last option. This area has had a lot of rain and snow this year, so right now the fire risk remains relatively low. That could all change in an instant. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. Rainbow flags will fly over Uray County in southwest Colorado this weekend. A group of LGBTQ youth are organizing the county's first public pride celebration in Ridgeway Town Park. Aaron is a 16-year-old at Uray High School. He's transgender, and he's one of the organizers. Tara is also organizing the event. She's the mother of a transgender youth. We're only using first names to protect their privacy. Tara, Aaron, welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Hello, how do you do? Doing well, thanks. Uray County, the town of Ridgeway, and the city of Uray have all passed resolutions supporting this event. Erin, how is it going to feel for you to see the rainbow flags very publicly displayed around your county on Sunday to celebrate you and the LGBTQ community? I think it's going to be very important not only to say that, hey, just because we're a rural town doesn't mean we have some color, some spice, as some would say. Um, But it's also going to be very important for those who are still in the closet to know that they're not alone and that there is a community, in fact, that will help them no matter what. You've lived in Uray County since you were a little kid. What was it like for you to come out here? Well, it was, (laughs) as most coming out, kind of scary, terrifying, you know, because you're giving out this vital piece of personal information to everyone and hoping, hey, don't like be mad at me for this. I decided to come out in high school because you know how middle schoolers are. It was strange. Everybody mostly was like, yeah, you're good. Like we accept you for everything and such. But there were some, I guess you could say outliers, but people who accepted outweighed those who didn't. Since I have come out, being one of the first out trans students in URA, four or five other people followed my lead. I also learned that there's at least 20 trans people in Telluride. um, And there's a lot more in Ridgeway, a lot in Montrose and just surrounding the state. It's just, it's like one of those weird paintings, I guess you could say, where the longer you look at it, the more you notice things. That's basically what the LGBTQ community is. That's a really good way of putting it. That's a great picture. Tara, Delta County's Pride Parade in May is part of the reason this celebration in URA got off the ground. What's the connection there? 
We have a small advocacy group here in Erie County called Safer More Affirming Communities. And we heard about what was going on in Delta with their school board decision around whether or not to implement comprehensive sex ed in alignment with the state law. And so we heard that that, that decision was happening. And so we just wanted to go and support the community and the students there in particular. And so we went, my family and I, as well as um, some other young people from the community, and, and we're just inspired by the power of people coming together in such a positive way, in such a courageous way. Um, and so that we'd already been kind of throwing around the idea of a, of a pride event here, and that just really kind of lit the fire. What were your conversations like in Delta County? Um, I feel really kind of vulnerable sharing this, but um, there were some people there who wanted the school board to not teach comprehensive sex ed. And where one gentleman I remember was kind of vocally angry at the pride demonstrators and, and the party that was going on there. And I was engaged in a conversation with him um, about his faith. He was clearly like motivated by his belief in the Bible and, and his Christian faith. And one of the things that we talked about is what would Jesus do? Um, and who would Jesus scream and yell at? And it wasn't people that were marginalized in society. That, that Jesus found issue with. It was the most privileged in society. That was one of the more meaningful conversations that I had there. Are you concerned that there could be similar demonstrations in Uray County? I don't feel terribly concerned. Um, that, was, that was really an event that was around a specific decision and a specific school board. Um, this is really a celebration um, that the youth in this community have initiated and are leading. And I think it's going to be a wonderful event. Um, you know, people are certainly always free to peacefully and, and respectfully express themselves. So if people do that, we're, we're prepared for that. But we're really looking forward to like a glorious um, celebration of diversity in our community um, and, and are really expecting it to be very positive and not confrontational. Erin, what are some of the ways that y'all are celebrating? So I do know we're having a parade. We're going to raise a flag over the fairgrounds and the main park uh, that has a stage. There's going to be family-friendly, all-ages drag performers that are going to be here. There's going to be some acknowledgement to the Indigenous people and especially the LGBTQ community in within the Indigenous and more marginalized communities because they're our most vulnerable because, one, it's always it's already hard to be part of the LGBTQ community, but it's extra hard when there's, you know, systemic racism or just regular racism down the street, you know, so it's very important that we acknowledge that. Tara, when you moved to URA, you were looking for a place where it felt safe for your child who's transgender. What was it like looking for this place? Um, we, it was, it was kind of scary. Um, our child was not in a place where they were um, physically safe at school because of just kind of daily physical and verbal harassment that they were experiencing as a result of their living their authentic self. Um, and the school district that we were in wasn't ready to be supportive of that, was the adults were very uncomfortable with that conversation, didn't know how to have that, didn't know what the state um, regulations were, the federal regulations. And so after a year of trying to educate the school district, we finally realized that we needed to find a different scenario for our child to be safe. And so we did a lot of calling around to school districts around the state. And I can't say that, that the Uray County schools were necessarily ready either, but they were the most willing to work with us and they were the most willing to learn. And that's what we were looking for. Um, and so we worked with the school district and others within the community to just help our community become more familiar with the topic, which was not always easy for everybody either. It's a topic that many of us don't have a lot of information about, gender diversity. 
And so it's been a process, but it's also been one, I think, that our overall our community has really embraced the opportunity to learn and be a, a place where everybody can be welcome and pursue an education and without fear. And it's, we're, we're still in process, but I think that we're making great strides. Erin, tell me a little bit about your experience. How does that square with how you've experienced the school district and school? Well, originally when I first came out, the old principal was unaccepting in a sense. Uh, Like, I guess I was in a quote, his kind of science experiment to figure out, quote, end quote, what was wrong with me? But the new principal is um, a lot better. Like the first thing that he did when he saw me is he took me into this office and he goes, what bathroom would you like to use? And I go, men's room, naturally. And he goes, what is your name? And I go, Aaron. And he goes, what are your pronouns? And I say, you know, he, him. And he goes, would you like me to change your name in all of the systems? And I first thought that wasn't legally allowed because, you know, you have to have your legal name. But apparently that was a big fat lie. (laughs) Um, So, like, I get that that's the bare minimum, but the bare minimum is definitely nice when you're not used to the bare minimum. There could definitely be more strides, I guess you could say, but this is a good first step. Yeah, I'm really sorry that he's the first principal said those things to you. Tara, you mentioned your group, Safer, More Affirming Communities Committee. You brought trainers in from Seattle and other Colorado counties to help educators and others in your county better understand how to support LGBTQ youth. And that led to the formation of the group that continues to meet and has gotten a lot of support. How does it feel to see the youth in your community now running what you started with? Incredible and not surprising um, because I know how much power and vision youth have and and how their lived experiences give them a kind of expertise um, in what their community needs and what they need as, um, as people and as a community. I feel really proud and honored to be able to be a part of it. You know, it sounds like you've both found support here in your to some degree. Pride parades have been happening for decades in other parts of the country. Why do you think this is Yuri's first official Pride celebration? There's been other quote-unquote like Pride celebrations, but it's never something this ambitious. Mm-hmm. There have been private ones, groups of friends. That kind yeah. Of I feel really proud of the proclamations. There's strong support saying that, that these entities recognize that our communities are going to be stronger um, when we are affirm equity and inclusion and, and justice in our communities and, and love for each other. Um, and that it really lines up also with like our development policy. We want it. We want to grow, and we want to be a place where creative people feel comfortable coming, and people of of all backgrounds feel comfortable and welcome. So I think I feel proud of our elected officials for recognizing that this is um, something that makes our community stronger overall. And Aaron, I know I don't have to tell you, Pride and community allyship are about more than one day or one month celebrations. What other changes do you want to see in your aid that would make it feel safer and more welcoming? Uh, I guess just like better policies for like non-discrimination against, you know, people being slightly different than the quote unquote status quo. That would be definitely nice. Uh, Some like gender neutral bathrooms that aren't just family bathrooms, but like specifically gender neutral bathrooms. Restrooms are restrooms, you know, like the only reason why it's been politicized is because people are afraid of cis men going in and harming women, not because of any trans person doing anything. And maybe just like, it's mainly the tourists that are like not for this, which is really weird. I always see an uptick in like really angry rhetoric during the summer, which is when tourists appear. So it's like during the winter, it's nice and things are kind of hunky-dory. And then boom, summer and everybody's like, oh, I'm angry now. (laughs) 
That's hard. Tara, what do you want to see? Um, I think the primary thing is I, our youth are starting to really take the lead. And so I would really like to see that continue and like to see the Pride event continue as a way of really galvanizing people together. Our school districts, there's two school districts in Uray County that have both passed affirming policy for transgender and gender nonconforming staff and students over the last year. And I think that's positive. I'd like to see the schools really feel confident in how to implement that. I'd like to see the schools feel really confident in how to implement comprehensive sex education and health education. I know that there's a lot of commitment and willingness, which is great, but there also, I think, needs to be some more support so that all the students see themselves reflected in the curriculum in ways that are evidence-based and um, helpful. Before we go, I'd love for each of you to tell me about something in particular in this Pride celebration that you're really excited about. Um, I guess I think the entire thing is going to be really fun. Like some of my friends are performing and a lot of my friends also like got a lot of this together. Um, I, I guess I'm most excited for people who don't know what's going on to have literally like no context whatsoever. And they're like, what? What's, <laughs> what are you doing? I think I'm excited for some of those like maybe surprise encounters as well, just around people being like, wow, like we actually had a, a meeting, a planning meeting in the park yesterday. We had like like 19, 20 people there um, to help us plan this, just our last planning meeting. And there was a woman who just kind of happened upon the meeting and was like, oh, I didn't know that this community existed here. I didn't like, and she's part of the LGBTQ community, um, it seemed from what she was sharing and didn't have any people, any connection. And so I think it was really affirming for her to just kind of stumble upon this meeting happening. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful, kind of like at what Aaron said earlier, that people who may feel alone or isolated or um, afraid to be their authentic selves um, feel less afraid. We also have just a tremendous amount of like creativity and energy and, you know, the youth are planning all sorts of wonderful things like making t-shirts and buttons and you know all of which will be like able to hand make during the event and all sorts of things to help people connect with each other so there's just I think there's a lot of creativity I'm looking forward to the performances but also the open mics where people get an opportunity to just get up and share their stories and I think that's this is just an opportunity for people to connect and celebrate openly being ourselves that sounds like a blast thank you both so much for sharing with me yeah, thanks for having us. It was a blast. Thanks so much. Tara and Aaron are organizers for Uray County's first public pride celebration. It's happening in Ridgeway Town Park on Sunday. When we come back, celebrating the highest-ranking Jewish soldier in U.S. history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Market. Black and brown people are still getting arrested. On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. An eco-terrorism incident from the 1980s has become a central issue in today's committee vote on President Biden's pick to lead the Bureau of Land Management. Since Tracy Stone Manning's confirmation hearing, there's been growing Republican opposition to her nomination. An episode from her past is casting a shadow over what the administration had hoped would be an easy confirmation. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. 
There's one thing most everyone agrees on. In 1989, then-grad student Stone Manning mailed a letter to the Forest Service warning them that someone had spiked trees to prevent logging in Clearwater National Forest in Idaho. While the tree is still in the forest, a spike is driven in at an angle so the head is hidden in the bark. It can shatter a chainsaw on impact, sending pieces of razor-sharp steel flying. That's Wyoming Republican Senator John Barrasso. He was asking the National Forest Service chief about the dangers of tree spiking a couple of weeks ago. So if someone were made aware of a tree spiking incident on a national forest, should that person immediately alert the police or the Forest Service? Yes, Senator. In written testimony, Stone Manning says she had no involvement in the spiking operation and believes she was notifying the authorities by agreeing to mail the letter written by the people who did. Republicans say Stone Manning made false and misleading statements to the committee about her role and her environmental activism when she was a student. Utah Senator Mike Lee told Fox News she supported eco-terrorism. Conspiring with, uh, with, with criminals to make vile threats. She also lied to the Senate about her involvement in that. She's not fit to run the Bureau of Land Management. But the whole incident is pretty muddy. The two men who were convicted of tree spiking say Stone Manning wasn't involved, but offered differing accounts for when she learned about it. Republicans note that a federal employee who investigated the case alleged that she was actually a target of the investigation, but offered no proof. GOP senators have asked Biden to withdraw her nomination, and they point out that a former Obama BLM director agrees with them. Stone Manning supporters note Obama's other BLM director continues to support her nod. This all adds up to a partisan and contentious committee vote. Aaron Weiss, deputy director at the Center for Western Priorities, sees Republican opposition as payback for Stone Manning's support of former Montana Governor Steve Bullock's failed Senate run against GOP Senator Steve Daines last year. And so they seized on this incident from 30 years ago where Tracy did the right thing. Not one Republican senator asked Stone Manning about the incident during her confirmation hearing in early June. Democrats on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee continue to support her nomination, including Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper. Weiss hopes senators look at what Stone Manning has done across her professional career. She has a a 30-year track record of working with all stakeholders to build solutions that work for, for the outdoors. And the recent back and forth has not changed Biden's view that Stone Manning is eminently qualified to lead the public lands agency. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki. Uh, He stands by his nominee and looks forward to her getting confirmed. If she is, she'll be the first confirmed BLM director since the Obama administration. The committee vote is expected to fall along party lines, setting up a potential 50-50 split on the Senate floor, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the final yes needed for confirmation. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Colorado will build a statue to memorialize World War II Major General Maurice Rose. State lawmakers announced the project Tuesday. Rose was the highest-ranking Jewish soldier in U.S. history. He grew up in Denver and his family, with his family and was also a veteran of the First World War. One of the city's biggest hospitals is named after him. House Speaker Alec Garnett helped pass a resolution approving the statue's construction. This really is something that I think is is going to help every generation of school-age kids who come and visit the Capitol. 
The statue will be in the newly renamed Lincoln Veterans Memorial Park across from the state capitol. Rose led the 3rd Armored Division, known as Spearhead. He was killed on the battlefield in the final weeks of World War II. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with author Marshall Fogel about Rose's legacy in 2018. Why was the 3rd Armored Division, which he led, known as Spearhead? Because Rose decided to name the 3rd Armored Division Spearhead once he gained the position of Major General over the 3rd Armored Division. Spearhead meaning the tip of the spear, and they are the first into battle. The first into battle, and what does that mean in terms of how they're equipped and what they faced? They're equipped with uh, tanks, artillery. If you stretch the 3rd Armored Division, which is known as a heavy armored division, in one straight line, it would go for 10 miles. Oh, my goodness. So it's sizable and it's armored. Yes, there's only two heavy armored divisions in World War II in Europe, the 3rd and the 2nd. Being assigned to being the, the head of the 3rd Armored Division was the most prestigious award given to a soldier. Eisenhower was looking for a fighter, just like Lincoln was looking for Grant. And Eisenhower found the best field commander in the war, General Maurice Rose. Maurice Rose, uh, who was essentially then a tank commander. How did he do that differently from others? He fought from the front. The men respected him. Uh, He always dressed in a cavalry outfit. He was immaculate. So they called him the immaculate killer of Nazis. He was relentless in pursuing the enemy. And the men respected him because he took the same risks as they did in war. That was unusual to have someone so high ranking be that far forward. One soldier reported to me when he first saw General Rose coming into battle, he said, I thought Caesar was riding six in a chariot with six white horses. They loved him. They donated $35,000 to build Rose Hospital, the men of the 3rd Armored Division, after Rose was killed. He led many wartime assaults. Uh, The Battle of Carrington in France, shortly after the D-Day invasion, that was really a turning point for him, wasn't it? There were, there were some significant battles. Carrington was between Omaha and Utah Beach. It was uh, captured from the Germans by the Airborne Division, who was trapped. Rose led his soldiers into Carrington, stopped the counterattack. German papers later said that had Rose not taken Carrington, they could have rolled up Normandy. Secondly, in Operation Cobra to get out of the uh, French force, Rose broke the defenses of the 7th Army, saved Patton's uh, supply lines, and that's when Eisenhower said, we found our grant. We got the, the right guy, the best field commander in the war. That is truly when he proved himself. What was the mission on that he was killed in? He was killed in, at Parrington. He drove his forces 100 miles in a 24-hour period, which is a record that stands to this day to surround the pocket where the Ruhr Industries was located and 325,000 Nazis. Rose was killed leading his troops into battle to capture Paderborn, Germany, in March 30th, 1945. What do you know specifically about how he died? He was looking for his troops, and it was dusk, and he uh, was trapped, and he wanted to get around in his Jeep some Tiger tanks, uh, which were 
the part of the Nazi forces. They trapped him between a plum tree and a tank, got out of his jeep, put his hands up, and he was killed for, uh, with 14 bullets in his body. Some people believe to this day he was murdered as a prisoner of war. If that's true, then he's the highest-ranking commander in World War II to be killed in war and combat as a POW. Rose wasn't a West Point graduate. How did his military career take shape? Rose dropped out of East Denver High School. He never graduated high school, ran away from home, joined the military. His mother had to go get him. And then finally, at the age of 17, they, his parents, uh, Rabbi Rose and his mother, allowed him to go to war. He was wounded in France, left the army, and went back. And the reason Rose was a handsome man, six foot three. Uh, I don't know if I, the book would have sold if he didn't look like Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photo of him on the cover. Uh, yes, and so to make the long story short, uh, he went to war colleges nine years out of the 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and he became uh, a star pupil. He learned how to fight. He learned how to win a war. He learned how to win over uh, the people that he... Uh, commanded, and he was a darling of of the generals that saw him in action. Do you think he was insecure about his education? I think he was driven to be educated, so he probably had probably preceded the fact he was insecure. He never went to West Point, and that's amazing that he he just uh, learned how to fight. What was it like for Jews in the military during Rose's time? It was as bad as you can imagine. The 1920s, we had Henry Ford, a, a rabid anti-Semite, George Patton, a rabid anti-Semite, uh, the, uh, Father Coughlin, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, anti-Semitism was rampant. And in 1918, the uh, government formed the Secret Military Intelligence Division, which uh, wasn't made declassified until the 70s, keeping Aryans in the service and keeping Jews and other minorities out. They taught social Darwinism. Rose had to overcome. Boy, did he have to overcome. Well, I think what's also fascinating about this time is that in in World War II, you obviously have the U.S. fighting, you know, rampant anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism. And yet, as a Jew in the armed forces, he's both fighting Nazis, but also fighting anti-Semitism, I guess, within his own country, his own ranks, though though in a different form. It's almost as if God gave you the answer. The first soldier to move into Germany in World War II to break the German border, capture the first German town, shoot down a German airplane, was the Jewish general Maurice Rose. How biblical is that? How biblical is that? Denver's Jewish community chose to honor him by naming the hospital after him. And I think you said that his fellow soldiers rallied to help make that happen. Why was it decided that this should be the route to honor him? Because he was, first of all, he's the first real Jewish national hero. His death was was so uh, bereaved by uh, General Marshall Eisenhower, the president of the United States. All the newspapers reported it, and they felt that a naming it in honor of a Jewish war hero would uh, grant the hospital national publicity to raise money to build this hospital, which is the first to allow a black doctor on the staff. So there's a legacy here that's important to our Colorado community. 
Marshall, thanks for sharing this story with us. I won't drive by Rose Hospital the same way again. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Marshall Fogel's book is Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. He spoke with Ryan Warner in 2018. A statue of Rose is going to be placed across from the state capitol. Finally today, a summertime tradition is once again open in Larkspur. The Colorado Renaissance Festival is a medieval kingdom and an escape from modern times. CPR's Paolo Scholzeda takes us into the realm. Come one, come all. The Renaissance Festival is back after a year away due to the coronavirus pandemic. When I stepped through the castle gates, and yes, there are castle gates, I was greeted by a medieval folk band and performers in typical villager garbs. A huge part of the Renaissance Festival's appeal is the immersion. Some people walk around menacingly in their full suits of armor, others run around yelling nonsense as if they're a real-life Shakespearean fool, and some, like Brett Kreider, dress up in an astronaut costume, pretending to be a time traveler. When you come here, it's kind of like the vibes are very, you know, chill. Yeah, it's just like you're in an alternate reality anyway, so here we are. The festival isn't just a tourist attraction. For dozens of vendors, it's a vital source of income for their niche products. I'm Ginger Baird of the Bard's Music Shop. We make musical instruments, handmade, for people who play instruments, but especially for people who don't. I get to teach you how to do it. Baird sells a variety of woodwind instruments, like flutes and recorders. She says she learned how to craft them with her husband, who grew interested in bamboo instruments after serving in Vietnam. The dragon whistles the top section of a flute, and it sounds like this. I'm from Arizona, southern Arizona, and we come up to this festival. This will be my 25th year here. I I am so glad to see all my friends again. You know, I track them on Zoom. We have Zoom gatherings and everything else, but there's nothing like a good hug. Some people there aren't making their money by selling wholesome goods like Baird. Kevin Sarhady paid $5 to a booth so he could throw tomatoes at the booth's owner, who stands a ways away as an open target. What he didn't expect was for his victim to start hurling insults back at him. Sir, how long have you been using Rogaine? <laughs> Unfortunately for him, he missed the very loud target every time. All right, you suck. Next. He's just sitting here talking trash to everybody, so I wanted to see if I can get him in the face, but I failed. In the middle of all the mini games, rides, old-fashioned festival food, and jousting exhibitions, came bagpipe renditions of music from the Lord of the Rings movie franchise. It was time for a wedding, and not just any wedding. I'll let Mario Vigil, cousin of the bride, explain. I'm used to the more traditional Catholic weddings. <laughs> That's what I always go to. <laughs> Groom is wearing a bear pelt hat thing. It's pretty awesome, actually. Curtis Cole was in attendance. He's worked with the bride and groom before in a pretty unique setting. The groom is a professional wrestler. Yeah, he's a pro wrestler. Half of the crowd here were pro wrestlers. Yep. That, that, that bear is what he wears to the ring. He's a Viking named Hunter Gray. And Marissa, the woman he's marrying, she used to be a pro wrestler also, as well as a valet in pro wrestling, and that's where they met. 
The ceremony, despite the appearance of an evil half-human, half-orc hybrid, went off without a hitch. May the newlyweds love live until Valhalla. Walking back to the front gates towards the parking lot, I ran across Ricky Lewis, a first-time attendee who was wearing a tank top and shorts. A pretty unremarkable outfit that wouldn't make you look twice. Well, except for one thing. A pair of antlers. He said it was love at first sight. I don't think you need it, but it's definitely nice to have, for sure. Like, as soon as you get here, everyone else is dressed up, you're going to want to dress up too. That right there is the thing about the Renaissance Festival. Even for people who just came with their friends to watch some jousting while sipping on a cold mead, there's a contagious enthusiasm in the air. The Colorado Renaissance Festival will be open every weekend until late August. From the Kingdom of Larkspur, I'm Paolo Shasta, CPR News. Thanks for joining us, and to the keepers of our realm, the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Nancy Lofholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.